Hello, everybody. This is Shift Time Podcast, the episode number 40. And we have a special guest today, uh, Anne Lair, and she will introduce herself right now. Anne? Thanks so much. Great to be here. Thank you for all of our listeners. So as you said, my name is Anne Lair. I'm the SVP for the Center for Human Capital Innovation. That's a long word. Let me explain what we do to simplify it. We help you make better decisions about your people and whatever type of organization you're in. You're basically teaching companies and consulting companies to improve how they manage people. Am I, am I right? Exactly. How to manage people, how to get people engaged, how to get people motivated and excited so that we can be innovative and creative in the work that we do. You know uh, how I found you? I was preparing a document for one of the investors and I was trying to find people on the internet who are saying something about freelancers. And I found your blog post, your article on your blog, where you said that uh, the, 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 freelance, the freelancer is a completely different creature from a full-time employee. And it's so difficult to, you know, to fit in the organizational culture for a freelancer into the culture of a full-time, you know, a full-time culture. That's how I found your blog, and I started reading that. And uh, today I want to ask you many questions about, uh, you know, the cultural things and soft skills, which I, I believe, and, and I believe, and many people believe that programmers, the majority of our listeners are programmers, that, uh, tech people, like from, from software industry. So there is thing which is called soft skills, which people say that programmers need in order to be successful in, in modern projects. So what do you think in general about that soft skills? I think soft skills are very important. Uh, So first of all, that word soft skills is not my favorite word, but just to help people understand, generally people have what we call technical skills. So can I do the data analysis? Can I do the programming? That's what we would call a technical skill. And then we have, again, not my favorite word, but a soft skill. So the soft skill is how do I work with the people around me? How do I collaborate? How do I manage conflict? Uh, What we see again and again is uh, as you start to enter into your career and what you get hired for an entry and and maybe one or two levels up is your technical skills. You are hired to work to create whatever the program is, to create whatever it is needed in the programming. And that gets you to a certain level. And then what we notice is after a few years, it is the soft skills that will get you to the next level. So I want to be really clear. It's not that we only want soft skills. We need both. But what we have seen again and again is that the more successful people and the higher up have more of a focus on the soft skills than on the technical skills because they're not necessarily the ones who are doing it day to day in terms of the data programming, that kind of thing. And those soft skills, can you list a few of them to be clear what we mean by that? Absolutely. So a soft skill could be anything that has to do with the people that you are working with. So it could be collaboration. How do I work in a meeting to collaborate to find a new solution? Another soft skill could be conflict management. And I want to be really clear, conflict is not, you know, we're fighting in the office. What it means is I just want something different than what you want. That's all it is. And so how do we manage it when we're working with a team on a new product to say, you know what, you have an idea, I have an idea, and how do we come up with the best idea? So conflict management is a, is a classic soft skill. Uh, coaching, coaching is not only for external coaches, but how do I coach the people around me if I am managing them or the people I am working with? Collaboration, conflict, coaching, and then probably the biggest one is what we call emotional intelligence. 
Emotional intelligence is also known as EQ or EI, depending. And what that really talks about is understanding the emotions of the room so that we can then manage the emotions of the room and help each other stay motivated to do the work. So those are four examples of very classic soft skills. Okay, so let's start with the first one, collaborating. So can you give like real examples of somebody with poor skills of collaborating and somebody with great skills of collaborating? What's the difference between these two people? Absolutely. So someone who has poor collaboration skills, let's say you and I and two others are working together and trying to find the bugs in a program or find to find the, the next version 2.0. And we go around the room and we say, we got this problem. And if I was not a strong collaborator, I'd say, well, this is the way it's supposed to be. This is the only way to fix it. There's no other way to fix it. I can't believe you think there's another way to fix it. I'm over-dramatizing it, but you get the idea. Someone who has stronger collaboration skills might say, so yeah, you're telling me about what you think is the best way to do it. And Amandi, tell me what you think is the best way to do it. And Jan, what do you think is the best way to do it? And gathers ideas, listens to the ideas, and then depending what is the appropriate situation, either makes a decision or has the team make the decision. Because if I say to you, this is the only way to do it and just do it, that I'm not going to have a lot of buy-in. I'm not really going to be bought into the idea and I'm not really going to want to work on the idea. In the second example, if we all have some say and agree together, then I have more buy-in and I'm more excited to do the work. You know, but people say that the most successful, to be successful in an organization, you have to be assertive. That's the word I know, assertive. So, but you're saying that in order to be successful, I need to, instead of asserting my position, instead of pushing my position, I have to listen to all other opinions and then make a compromise or, you know, make something in the middle. Uh, so, yes, and uh, I'm a big believer in being assertive. Many people call me assertive. And when I say yes and, I mean, yes, we need to be assertive and we need to listen because the research is very clear out of Stanford that when we have multiple ways of looking at things, when we have multiple ways of a perspective on something, we get a better solution. I only know what I know as a programmer and the experience that I have. But there are three other people in that example who also have experience and may have more experience than I do. So for me to shove my idea down their throat means that I am missing their learning and their expertise. So yes, I'm going to assert and say, here's what I think is best. And Jaeger, tell me what you think is best. I want to gather and then we make a decision together. It may still be my decision that I thought. It may be your decision. So it's not necessarily compromising, but we are making a decision with all the data rather than just saying this is the way it's going to be. So why people are not doing that? So why these people with not enough soft skills are not doing this collaborating? What's the, what's the cause of that? Couple things. Uh, one is you just don't know how to. Uh, the, these things are skill sets. People think, oh, everybody knows how to collaborate. No, it's a skill set. There's actually a methodology, just like there's a methodology to Java. Uh, and so people, A, don't know how to do it. Uh, B, it's very, very busy these days, right? We're looking at all kinds of things and we're getting pinged and notifications all the time. And so if we think to ourselves, oh, that's going to take another 20 minutes. I don't have 20 minutes to have a conversation, right? It'd be a lot faster for me just to tell them what to do. In the short run, maybe. In the long run, no. So one of the constraints or the obstacles is time. One of the constraints or obstacles is I don't have the skill set to do it. And then the last one is, 
it's a mindset. What I mean by that is we got to where we are because we're very good at what we do. I am very good at this type of programming. And I am recognized as an expert in this type of programming. And so I get rewarded as this type of programmer. And so what we are saying is that if you are collaborating a little bit more, the team will get recognized. And again, the research is very clear out of Stanford that when the team gets recognized, the program is better, the product is better. But it's a mind shift away from me as the expert to the team as an expert. And that's just a, a new way of thinking for many people and many organizations. This could be quite disturbing for, you know, big ego experts who are actually good experts and they want to be personally appreciated and recognized. But you're suggesting to somehow, um, you know, to, uh, I don't know how to say it, but how to, to spread the recognition and to spread the attention across everybody in the team instead of focusing on one person. So it could be a potentially like psychological problem for many people. Right? Absolutely. It could absolutely be that problem. That's what I call mindset. You call it psychological. Uh, because again, I got rewarded. I got recognized for being the expert again in Java, whatever it may be. And you're telling me I have to share it. Why would I want to share it? Well, here's why you want to share it. There's only one of you. Right? I work with people at Facebook. I work with people in tech companies. I know how programmers think. There's a limited number of hours in a day. There's only so much you can do alone. However, when we spread it around the team and the team is bought in, all of a sudden we have a lot more energy and a lot more people and a lot more bandwidth than one person does have alone. So individually, as an individual contributor, or what we call an IC, you can only get so far. When the team works together and you're stuck and you're like, oh, I don't know how to do this and how to fix this bug. Hey, Jaeger, what do you think? Then all of a sudden things can go much faster and you can accomplish a lot more. Mm-hmm. And in order to achieve that, so people don't understand that, their minds are clouded by their, by their ego probably or something like that, and that's why they're not collaborating. And we can train them to, to improve, correct? Yes. The, the first step I always say is what I call the business case. So the business case is, look, here is all the research. Like, let's just look at all the research. You know, in this case, this company, you know, doubled its product share. In this case, the company... Blah, blah, blah. And so you can actually see like, this isn't just someone coming in and telling you what to do. Here are all the best practices around many different industries in the tech space that are saying, this works. It works for you, it works for the team, it works for the company. So the first thing I always say is the business case, because no one is gonna listen to any kind of training until they are bought into it. So it's like, okay, so now do you all see that, you know, this could actually make your day a lot easier. Oh yeah, I guess I see that, great. So now let's go and talk about how to do it. Just like there is a way that you program and deprogram, there is a way that you manage conflict or collaborate or coach. And so then we go into it. But we need to do the business case first. And have you seen situations where people are not, you know, listening to your trainings and still remain where they are? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Again, I work with a lot of technical people. I work with a lot of scientists uh, in the government as well as private sector. And so, you know, for them, it's really important to get this right, whatever this is, the lab or the programming. And so they, they don't take it on board, which is fine, right? It's not anybody's job to determine where your career is going to go. Uh, And though generally the research is very clear that the more that we collaborate 
the higher up you are, the more people you manage, the less you are actually doing the programming, doing the debugging, and more that you are actually working with three or four or five people, perhaps even managing them and helping them work together as a team. But you're right, not everybody wants to be, you know, not coding, not debugging, not testing, but some people actually want to stay focused on technical things. And, and I guess for that people, you would recommend not to, you know, get better with, the, with their soft skills, right? Uh, actually, no. Um, so there's, I'm gonna answer that in two ways. So first of all, we have what we call an IC, and IC is an individual contributor, and then we generally have managers, supervisors, different levels and different organizations. And, and organizations need both. Organizations need ICs who are their SME, the subject matter experts, who are the best at testing, coding, et cetera. And also need managers, supervisors, directors, so that you can scale the organization. There used to be a philosophy that everybody has to be a manager. And I think more and more organizations are realizing that's not the case, that it is perfectly acceptable to have ICs and really have that subject matter expertise. What I will say though is that sometimes ICs, individual contributors, feel like they are not being recognized, feel like they're not getting the same opportunities for growth that managers and supervisors are. So if you as an organization have both, I would say just make sure that you recognize both, that there is a track for ICs and how they can progress in their career, and there's a track for supervisors, managers, directors, and how they can progress in their career, and both are recognized. That's the first part of my answer. The second part of my answer is, even if you are an IC, you still need to know the basics of collaboration because you are probably going to have to collaborate maybe with senior leadership or with other uh, departmental leads so that you can actually get your point across and you can get the funding or the testing that you need. So it can't hurt anybody to have these skills. Mm -hmm. Sounds right. Uh, what about the second part? The, the second point you, you, you mentioned, the conflict resolution techniques or skills. Again, my question is, what's the difference between people who know how to, who have those skills for conflict resolution and those who don't have, how they differ? Yeah, so let's, uh, so let's go into the ones who do not have it. So there's generally five ways to manage conflict, and people who know all five ways know how to use the right one in the right situation. So we call situational awareness, like, oh, there's this going on, I need to pay attention. So the five ways to manage conflict is compete, compromise, collaborate, avoid, or accommodate. Now, all of us have what we call our preferred go-to style, so I prefer to accommodate, I prefer to avoid. And there's nothing wrong with that. At certain times, it is totally appropriate to accommodate. Uh, however, if that's the only thing that you know how to do, that doesn't make you a strong IC or manager or supervisor. So let's say, for example, that I am someone who always accommodates. So accommodating means that you want something and I always say yes to you. Right? That's how I manage it. I don't want to get into a conversation with you. Even if I disagree with what you're saying, I always accommodate. And so an example of someone who has poor um, conflict management skills and accommodation is their go-to skill, every time you come to me and you say, hey, Ann, can you, can you just work on this? Hey, Ann, can you just work on this? And I say yes, and I say yes, and I say yes, and I keep accommodating you, eventually something's going to happen, right? Either I'm going to blow up or I'm going to miss deadlines 
or I'm going to get frustrated or something's going to happen because I did not manage that conflict instead of saying, you know what, Yeager, I can do it. And that means this other deadline is going to be a little delayed or I can do it, but it means that I can't do it until next week. That's what we call conflict management. So someone who doesn't have it would just say, yes, 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 yes. And then something will happen, a blow up or a missed deadline or an unhappy client. The person who has those skills, again, whether you're an IC or supervisor or manager, say, you know what? I understand that's important to you. And I really can't get to that till next week. How does that sound? Or I know that's important to you. And if you need it today, I need to tell you that this other thing won't get done today. So you're having a conversation and managing any potential conflict up front rather than just saying yes, 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 and blowing up later on. And why people are doing that? Saying yes, yes, yes. Is it a cultural thing or again, the mindset? What's, what's wrong with them? Uh, so there's nothing wrong with anybody, right? It's we, we do things that worked for us and then they no longer work for us. Uh, the yes, yes, yes mentality, there's a couple of things that are going on there. Uh, people think that if I say yes, I'm being seen as a team player. Uh, and so people want team players. And so they think, well, if I say yes, then Jaeger's going to think I'm a team player. So that's great. Uh, people who say yes uh, are afraid that they're not going to be liked at work. Uh, and there's a difference between being effective and being liked, the difference between being liked and being respected. Uh, and again, it's a skill. It is a skill to know the language, what I call a word bridge. Like, oh my gosh, I cannot say yes to Jaeger, and I really don't even know how to get the words out of my mouth. So it's a skill to say, there's a number of different ways you could say it, yes, and yes, later. Uh, so when people are constantly saying yes, either they think they're being a team player and they're not when they blow up, or they literally just don't have the skill set yet. And just like a skill set for testing, there is a skill set for actually managing conflict. And maybe the team actually promotes certain type of behavior in people. That's what I've seen in many situations, many teams I've been working in for, you know, in my career, that sometimes the team just doesn't want to hear anything except yes. So you literally, if you say something else, if you manage this conflict somehow else, you, you will be blamed as a, as a non-team player. So maybe it's not only the fault of one person. Maybe people are just accommodating themselves to the, uh, to the culture of the team. You're absolutely correct. So we call it the culture of the team and then as well the culture of the organization, right? So there are some organizations where it is expected that you will always say yes. There are other cultures of organizations where it's expected that you will speak up and self-advocate. You'll speak up for yourself if there is an issue. Uh, there's, I was at an organization, a tech company yesterday, um, and one of the things that they always say is that there, that some, a problem is not somebody else's problem, it's your problem. Uh, in other words, you need to speak up if something is going on. So uh, we have what we call individual culture, what I learned and how I use it. Then we have, as you said, the team culture, what does the team expect of me? And then we have the larger organizational culture and what are the norms? We call them the norms, what people normally do in an organizational culture. And all of that can push against each other, which can create tension and someone gets frustrated and that type of thing. So it seems that those soft skills we're talking about, they are quite subjective. They are, you know, for each particular team, we may need different set of soft skills. A different set of soft skills, perhaps. Um, so maybe one team really needs more conflict management, not so much collaboration. So different 
Skill sets, yes. How you do it is still the same. Like that's not going to change team to team. Uh, however, do I need more of conflict here? Do I need more of uh, emotional intelligence here? Yeah, that can certainly depend on the team and the organizational culture. And how do you, how can you, I'm thinking right now about myself. So how can you reflect on yourself and, and somehow measure your progress on this soft skill? So how do I know that I perform being in some team, being in some project? How do I know how well I perform on that level? Because on technical skills, I know pretty much well how to measure my success. I see the amount of lines of code I write. I see the amount of features I produce. I see the code quality. So I know how to measure. How can I measure myself there by the amount of salary I'm getting or what's, What's the result? Yeah, so uh, first of all, every soft skill is measurable. People think it is not, but basically a soft skill is just like, like a technical skill. You break it down into behaviors, right? So in coding, I'm going to do these certain number of keystrokes. I'm going to do a certain number of these things. Like those are certain behaviors that you do, and then you can measure the end result and how much code did I produce, et cetera. It is the same for soft skills. There are certain behaviors that tell you that you are doing it correctly. So let's talk about emotional intelligence. We haven't really talked about that yet. Mm -hmm. So emotional intelligence is an overarching soft skill. And at a very high level, what it says is, how do I see what's going on with me, my emotions today? And then how do I let that impact those around me? So if I have a low emotional intelligence, let's say I'm very frustrated, it's the holidays, I have a lot going on, my mother is sick, I'm tired, I'm hungry, and I come into a meeting and I get frustrated or I snap at someone, that means that I have a low self-emotional intelligence because I'm not even aware that I'm frustrated and I lash out at someone else. And so that is someone who has low emotional intelligence. Very, very oversimplified example, but you get the idea. And so what we can then do is, and people call me all the time and they say, you know, I really need to work on my emotional outburst. I get frustrated really easy with clients and then I, I lash out at clients or at colleagues or teammates. And so what we then do is, okay, so let's just say, how many times a week do you lash out at a client? I'm making this up. Five times a week. Okay. So now we're going to go through the skills of managing your emotions, recognizing that you're frustrated before you lash out. And then we're going to measure, okay, this week, how many times do you lash out? Still five. Okay, let's keep working on it. This week, oh, four times. So it's the same way that you can measure coding and how many lines of code, someone can measure how many times do I lash out at a client. In order to do that, we have to identify what are your areas of growth? Where do you want to improve your skills? And then we back into what are the skill sets you need? And then we can measure how many times you lash out at your client. Hmm. That sounds like this lash out of the client sounds like a negative thing, but uh, it seems by your structure of the conflict resolution techniques, it, it could be a possible conflict resolution as well. So you're not always supposed to be accommodating and saying, yes, maybe sometimes you need to, you know, to push, to push the client back and maybe to be even over aggressive sometimes. So maybe those are, you know, pretty legal cases and legal scenarios. I mean, legal in terms of successful, in terms of productive results. Yeah, yeah sometimes, absolutely. So, uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with competing, first of all. Some people, not everybody's like, oh, I never compete. I don't want to get anybody mad at me. Okay, well, there's nothing wrong with competing, right? We all compete all the time. 
right, uh, for an increase in our salary, for a promotion, uh, for a job, right? If you apply for a job, you're competing against someone else. Uh, so there are times that we compete all the time. Uh, the other thing is, you know, if it is about exactly as you said, if it's legal issues, if it's security, if it's safety, if it's compliance, uh, I'm going to compete because I'm not going to have a conversation and collaborate about this. This is the protocol. This is how to make sure that we are all safe. This is for privacy. And so we're not going to collaborate on do we have this policy or don't we have this policy? This is the policy. Now, what we may collaborate on is how do we create the best systems to make sure that we are maintaining privacy or maintaining whatever it is about the product? That we can collaborate on. But the are we going to have privacy or not privacy on? We're going to compete on that because there's no discussion to be had. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally, totally. Okay, let's go to the next one, the coaching. The, the, the position number three, you said it's also important soft skills. So coaching means that I'm supposed to be coaching somebody, I'm supposed to be teaching people around me, or I'm supposed to be uh, po po possible, possible to be coached. What is it? Great. So uh, coaching gets very confused with mentoring, with therapy. Uh, so I'm going to do a very simple story to explain the difference for everybody, and then we'll talk into how do you actually do it. So, Jaeger, by any chance, are you a skier? Uh, no. Skier? Yeah, I'm doing snowboarding. Okay, perfect. We'll take snowboarding. Okay. okay. So, let's imagine that you and I are snowboarding together. And for those on the, who are listening who are not familiar with it, uh, when you ski or snowboard, you go down hills, and the hills generally are rated based on how difficult they are. So, generally, green and blue is fairly easy. Generally, black is very hard. Mm -hmm. uh, and so let's say you and I go on a ski lift. I have some experience. You don't have too much experience. We get off the lift and we realize we're on a black hill, which means a very difficult hill. And you're like, oh my gosh, I've never done this before. This looks really hard. We look down the hill, we see many, many trees and we see a path down. If this was therapy, and I am a big fan of therapy. I think therapy can be very helpful for people. If this was therapy, you and I would ski up to a tree, we would look at the roots of the tree, we would figure out where those roots came from, and we would start to really have a conversation about the roots. That's not coaching, that's therapy, where we kind of look at, at the underlying causes of what's going on in someone's personality. Oversimplified, but you get the idea. Mm -hmm. If this was mentoring, where I was your mentor, you and I would look down the hill, and I would say, well, the first time I went down this hill, Jaeger, uh, I went this way, and then that way, and then this way. And the second time I went down this hill, I went that way. And watch out for that bump over there, and watch out for that tree. And then I would go down the hill first, and you would come behind me. I'm a big fan of mentoring. Everybody needs mentors in their life. Hugely helpful to get experience, to get more of an advice type of relationship. Hey, how did you handle this? How did you handle this? That's not coaching either. In a coaching relationship, you and I look down the hill, and I would ask you a lot of questions. Say, so what do you think is the biggest obstacle? What's one way that you think you could go down it? What's another way you could go down it? You would come up with your own solution, and you would go down the hill first, and I would follow. Mm -hmm. So that's the difference between mentoring, coaching, and therapy. Oversimplified, 
but hopefully you get the idea. So first of all, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It does. My question to you is, do you have a mentor? Do I personally have a mentor? Yeah. Yes. I yes. Yeah, I think everybody should have a mentor, right? Because it, it helps us uh, see things that we don't see who have experience. So, I've, so for example, in my world, I'm really understanding uh, the government business and how the government works. And I was always private sector before. And so I have a mentor who I'm like, how does the government work? Like, just tell me what I need to know about government contracting, right? So I have someone who basically kind of walks me through. And that's what a mentor does. A mentor walks you through certain situations. Excellent. Uh, I also have a coach though. And so the coach will also say to me and ask me those types of questions. So, you know, where do you want to go in government contracting? Uh, how can you get faster at government contracting? That type of thing. So that coach doesn't tell me anything about it, how to do it. But the coach makes me think through where I want to go with it. And that's what a coach would do, whether it's for an individual contributor or for a supervisor or manager as a scientist in the tech world, any world to help them move forward in whatever way they want to move forward. So uh, we need to, like, I need to have that person in an organization, which I enter. So I need to find a coach for me. Uh, so every organization does it a little differently. Um, so you'd have to check. Uh, so some organizations have, uh, you can just find, so I'm talking about coaching. You yeah. can just find a coach and it's usually what we call an internal coach. So it's someone inside the organization who's trained. Sometimes you have to be at a certain level to have a coach. Uh, so it depends on every organization. Uh, for mentors, again, it depends on the organization. Could have a formal mentoring relationship, could have an informal mentoring relationship. So a formal mentor relationship is uh, there's going to be one mentor and one mentee, and it's going to be a nine-month relationship, and it's set times for set lunch, that type of thing. Great. An informal mentor would be just someone that you admire, someone that you see who's maybe a couple of years ahead of you, who's really an expert in something, and you just want to pick their brain. So it might be more informal, like, hey, you know what, can, can I just take you out to lunch, and can I just ask you some questions about how you do this or how you manage this situation? Uh, so it could be a set person that you take out to lunch once a month, or it could be just someone maybe for a few months, you're kind of picking their brain. And then a few months later, you're picking someone else's brain, but you're learning either about the organization, right? Like how, how does it work? Who should I talk to? Or you're learning about the, the product that you're working in, uh, or you're learning about ways to move forward inside the organization. So you either can advocate for yourself and say, Hey, where's the formal mentoring program and how do I sign up? And if there isn't one, you could say to someone, you know, I, I really respect the work that you do and I would really love to learn more about that. Could we set up time for a coffee or a lunch? And they may say no. They may say no, so then you ask somebody else, right? <laughs> if it's that important to you, you just keep asking until someone says yes. And I will say, I have never had someone say no to me and I don't think I know anybody who said no to anybody. What they may say is, would love to, and I only have 30 minutes a month, or would love to, and I can't start for three months, uh, but rarely have I had anybody or heard of anybody saying a flat out no. Mm -hmm. Yeah, me neither. So let's compare these two types of behaviors, like people with the good soft skills in the areas of coaching and people with the poor soft skills in the area of coaching. How do they differ? How do they behave differently? Sure. So now that we know the difference between coaching and mentoring, uh, so when we think about coaching in the context I'm about to explain, it's me as a coach to the people I work with. 
So a lot of people think a coach is someone who comes in and we sit for an hour and we talk about certain things with executive leadership, which is true. That's what I do. However, internally, that's not how coaching works. It's what I call drive-by coaching. So you and I are going down the hall and you come to me and you say, you're, you know, you're just having a bad day. You're frustrated about something. And I would immediately start coaching you in the hall and it would maybe last five minutes. So the first obstacle is people say, oh, I don't have an hour for a coaching. I don't have an hour for a coaching either. But do I have three minutes or four minutes to talk to someone? Absolutely. So to coach, it's a very simple formula. You listen and you ask certain types of questions. That's really all it is. You're listening and you're really listening. You're not waiting for them to stop talking so you can be the smartest person in the room. You're not waiting for them to stop talking so that you can make your point, but you're really listening with curiosity. So this is actually where, where coders are quite good because coders are curious, like, oh, what if I did this? Oh, if I would have did that? The best coaches are also really curious. Now, the difference in coaching, though, is it's not your job to fix the problem, which can be hard for some people because they want to fix the problem and move on. As a coach, my job is to listen, to ask a few questions, and to let you fix the problem so that you're empowered. So in that situation that you just asked about, if I was a supervisor, could even be a colleague, doesn't have to be a supervisor relationship, uh, let's say someone comes to me and you come to me and you say, oh, Ann, I'm, I'm really struggling with this new code. It's really, really kicking my butt. I can't quite figure out how to make it work. If I was not a strong coach, I would say, oh, let me show you how to do it. Here's how you do it. Da, 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 da. You're like, no, no, I, I know how to do it. I'm just frustrated with it. It seems like it's taking a long time. Oh, let me show you a little different way to do it. And I'm not listening to you. Mm-hmm. If in that same situation, you come and you say, oh, I'm really frustrated with this new code. Instead of trying to fix it for you, I might say, so what, what's really bugging you about it? Well, what's really bugging me about it is that it doesn't actually mesh with the other code that we're working on. Oh, so what's the impact of that? Well, the impact of that is that if the two don't mesh, we're going to have problems in six months. Oh, so what do you need to do about that? Oh, I guess I need to have a conversation with so-and-so to find out what the priority is. So if I was not a strong coach, I would just try to fix it, and I wouldn't really understand what they're talking about. When I'm really coaching, and you can see how quick it is, I'm asking a few questions, and then that person is realizing, oh, yeah, you're right, and then they move on to do whatever they need to do. Mm-hmm. What do you well, think about to be, you know, To have the good soft skills in this area, I have to be prepared to ask questions, not to try to solve all the problems by myself, but be ready to ask people around me and find those coaches or mentors or, or you know, help, actually. Yeah, and that's hard, right? Going back to the beginning part of our conversation, that's hard because I was rewarded for fixing problems, right? I got known as the expert. And so that's great. And sometimes people don't need to be told what to do and to fix the problem. Sometimes they just need someone to brainstorm some ideas with or just talk about it for three minutes so that they can then figure out their own solution. So it is, if I'm a very visual person, And I use my hands a lot to tell stories. And so sometimes I literally will imagine that I'm taking one hat off of my head and putting another hat on my head. I don't usually do that in front of somebody, but it helps me realize I'm taking off my fixer hat 
and I'm putting on my coach hat to say, it's not my job right now with Jaeger to fix this problem for him. He's a smart guy. He's been doing this longer than I have. It's my job though, just to ask a couple questions so that he can find his own solution. Some people get shy or maybe get, uh, you know, scared of asking questions because that may compromise their, uh, their, their level of expertise because people may start thinking that they're, they're not in the right place and why this programmer is going around the office and asking questions how, their, how his or her problem is supposed to be fixed and blah, blah, blah. So maybe he's not or she's not a good programmer. Don't you think that also could be a problem here? Absolutely. It's a huge, huge issue. Right, that this domain expertise, that I am the expert, uh, is a huge obstacle to coaching. And yet, if you look at millennials, those people born between 1981 and 2001, and you look at the top three things that they are looking for at work, one of the top three things is a coach. They don't wanna to be told what to do, they want to be thinking through and finding the solution themselves. And, and that, if we want to retain people who have the skills that you need, we need to help them develop whatever way they want to develop, whether it's an IC or a manager. And the best way to do that is to help them think. So they could say, ah, this is, this is just ridiculous. Well, how important is this to you in six months? Well, it's really important actually that I get this done in six months. Great. How are you going to get it done? Right? Just by asking that question, how important it is it helps them realize, but you're absolutely right. You know, if you go around and are always asking questions, probably not the best thing to do. However, there's a term that people use, and I don't think people realize how important it is. People often say, oh, thought leader. You want to be seen as a thought leader. Uh, you want to help people think and strategize. And really, that's all coaching is, Jaeger. It's you're helping people think, and that's what we call a thought leader. Because at the end of the day, if you tell me how to fix it, I may or may not come back to you, right? However, if you ask me questions and make me think, you know what, I'm gonna go talk to Jaeger for two minutes because he always makes me think about a tough question and, and I really like that. And then that can kind of help you be seen as someone who is the go-to person for the, for the bigger questions. Again, whether you're an IC or a supervisor or manager. Mm -hmm. So should I be like, let's, let's put on the, like look, Let's look on the other side. Let's say I'm not looking at right now for a coach. I want to be a coach. So should I be in the office? Should I be like looking for students or looking for mentees? So looking for people who are, you know, wandering around and not knowing what to do and are looking for problem solvers. So should I approach them and say, hey, come to me. I can help you. I can be your mentor or I shouldn't. I wouldn't recommend that way. <laughs> um, so again, let's split the two. Let's split mentoring and coaching. Uh -huh. uh, so mentoring, uh, I think you could do that, right? So mentoring could be, hey, if you have any questions, feel free to just pop by and I'll be happy to help in any way I can. You know, hey, I know that you're really new in this language. If, if there's anything you don't understand, just, just pop in, happy to help you. So that's a way that you could create an informal mentoring relationship. Um, and, and I think that's fine, but certainly not like, hey, I'm the brightest person in the room. You know, come to me and you don't know what you're doing. Wouldn't recommend that. That's someone who has low emotional intelligence. Uh, but someone who has high emotional intelligence says, hey, you know what? I know that you're brand new here. I've been here three years. If you ever just want to know how things are done here, come by. I'll, I'll, let's have coffee. I think that's appropriate. Now, coaching, uh, coaching is just like programming. There is a specific way to do it. 
Um, and so I would recommend that you at least pick up a couple books or you practice before you just kind of go out on someone. Um, and I certainly wouldn't say, hey, let me coach you. Uh, however, what you could do though is again, using the analogy I said about taking your hat on and off, let's say that someone comes to you and they are they're like, oh, this is really tough. I've been testing and testing and testing and it's not going right, right? That could be an opportunity for you just to think to yourself, before I jump to action, before I jump to fixing, let me just ask a question and see where it goes. So I'd say, oh, okay. So what do you want the outcome to be? Well, I want the outcome to be a three-step solution. Oh, so what will those three steps look like? Right? Coaching is a conversation. People get a little uh, unused to how it is, but it's just a conversation where you're asking more questions. Now, I'm going to be really clear here. It's not the Spanish Inquisition. It's not like boom, 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 boom. Mm -hmm. You're listening. You're there talking. It's a conversation. So to go back to your question, uh, mentoring, I think informally, just saying you're open if anybody wants to pop in, I think that's great. If there's a formal mentoring program in the organization, check in with HR, whoever is setting it up, sign up. I think that's great. Coaching, I certainly would not say, hey, let me coach you. Uh, unless it's a formal relationship, so an internal coach to a coachee. However, I think for someone to learn this skill, they could pause, P-A-U-S-E, they could take a step back and say, let me just ask one or two questions and see if it's helpful. And you could start that way. And how all that will, I can see clearly that how that will benefit people who are looking for help, but how will it benefit those who are providing help? What's the, what's the point in doing that? I mean, how will it help the career wise? Yeah. So if you are seen as a thought leader, absolutely will help your career. Uh, if you are seen as someone who uh, is not the person who is always doing will help your career, right? I am constantly working with people, uh, managers, especially who are like, I don't have time to manage because I'm always doing. I said, well, we need to look at why you're always doing. Because if you're always doing, A, you're not going to be able to grow in your career. And B, you're not letting the people you're managing grow in their career because you're taking all the work away from them. So you're going to help your own career because then you can take on harder projects. You can take on new stuff. You can innovate in a new area because you're not doing the day-to-day -day stuff. And then the people you're managing, if they are doing more of your work, they are also growing. Uh, there's a very famous Harvard Business Review article called Who's Got the Monkey? It's an old article, but it's actually still very relevant. And what it talks about is oftentimes managers think they're helping. Let's say you and I are talking and you say that you're stuck with something. And I'll say, oh, yeah, don't, don't worry. I'll take care of that for you. And what I've done is I've taken the monkey off of your back and I've now put it on my back. So I now made my to-do list longer. Not really good for me. Not really good for you because you're not learning how to do it. And so when we are coaching or delegating properly, which is another soft skill, uh, we learn to leave the monkey over there. We're going to support the person. We're going to help the person. But we're not going to take your monkey for you unless we absolutely have to. Safety, security, that kind of thing. And that allows me to grow and do more innovation and allows that person to solve the problem for themselves. Uh 
Makes sense. So I'm going to become a thought leader and uh, what's going to happen next? How will I be promoted because of that? Or will I be uh, considered as a potential, uh, you know, potential candidate for a higher management position? Or what's going to happen next? Yeah, I can't guarantee that, but you certainly would probably be more considered, uh, right? It's like, oh, Jaeger, you know, he, his people are working well, his people are growing, he's growing, so you certainly would be considered. Again, I can't guarantee that. What often happens, though, is that when there is a new product line, when there is a new uh, puzzle to solve, uh, you often would be the person that they go to first. You know what? Jaeger is really good at, at working with people and finding creative ideas, and we have this really tough nut to crack around privacy or coding or testing, whatever. So let's have Jaeger run that group. Um, and so again, is it quote a promotion and a raise? Maybe not. Is it more interesting work for you? Probably. Yeah, that's true. But there is also a negative side on all this, you know, soft skills and, and, and dealing with a lot of people instead of dealing with the code and, and software by itself. I think it's politics because the more you involved in this people to people relationship, the more risky you are, the more shaky your position is, is for, as far as I understand, because not everybody are playing by the rules. Let's put it this way. And not everybody are being honest and being, you know, uh, being correct with you. So sometimes you may have problems with people don't you think that's a that's a risk in all that in this game i i think absolutely politics is a way of organizational culture so i think yes uh, i think there's also a risk of just sitting in your cubicle and only coding and and not growing your career as well uh, so i think there's there's risk either way you go and so it's a really important question for you to think about where do i want to go what do i want to be doing what kind of work excites me and then choose the behavior that's appropriate. Uh, and I also think though that the better you are at the soft skills, actually the better you are at managing politics, right? Because you know how to manage any conflict the politics is bringing up. You know how to collaborate to come up with an answer. So it will help you manage that. But at the end of the day, people have to choose where they want. And it's not like for the rest of your life, but people need to choose, you know, for the next year, for the next 18 months, for the next two years, what do you want to be known for? What do you want to be seen as? Uh, so that when you have your next, again, people call it different things, but whether it is your next calibration or your next performance review, whatever it is, like, what do you want the manager who is rating you to know you for? And then focus on that area. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it makes sense. So the, we have the last point about the emotional intelligence, you said, EQ or EI. Uh, so again, here are the same question. So what's the difference between someone with a high emotional intelligence and someone with a low emotional intelligence? How they differ, these, these two people? Yeah, so someone who has a, a low emotional intelligence, let's say that we're having a meeting talking about this new coding and a new system to fix the glitches. And um, some people are on their phone. Some people are not listening to you and you're leading the meeting. They're not listening to you. Uh, you ask them a question, they don't really answer. Uh, so that's someone who has a low self uh, emotional intelligence because they're not realizing what's going on. They just keep plowing ahead of the meeting. They don't realize, you know what? No one's listening to me. You know what? No one's paying attention. So let me stop. Let me pause and let me ask what's going on. Hey, everybody, how's everybody feeling today? Right? Because you're not reading the room. Part of emotional intelligence is understanding what's going on for your own emotions, but then also being able to read the room. And so uh, that's a huge thing in terms of 
even if you're just working with one person, to be able to read the room. If I could read the room, I'd maybe stop. If I'm working with one person and they're not really responding, I might say something like, hey, you know what, Jaeger, you, you don't really seem like yourself today. Uh, doesn't seem like we're really communicating well. What can I do to improve it? So you're able to read the room and then use that appropriately, depending on what is going on, to either motivate the person, help them motivate themselves, whatever the case may be. And do you think it's trainable? I think it's, it's, it's sort of a talent or something which we just, you know, are born with, no? Yeah, everybody thinks that. Yeah, everybody thinks that emotional intelligence and leadership are natural skill sets. Oh, you're either a natural born leader or you're not. Oh, you're either born with EQ, EI, or you're not. Actually, that's not the case at all. Uh, you're born with your IQ, and you can't really change your IQ that much unless you do a lot of Sudoku right? Uh, emotional intelligence, actually, you can change. And that's the great thing. It's actually a score. If you use, there's different assessments, but one assessment has a score and you can actually improve it based on just like programming, practicing certain behaviors. So uh, you are born with a certain level. And the great news is just like leadership, emotional intelligence, if you do certain behaviors and practice certain things, you will get better at it just like programming. Hmm. And do you know how to practice that? How do, what would I need to do in order to improve that and start listening to the room and start listening to people and start feeling people? Absolutely. There's a whole science behind it. Uh, there's hundreds of books written on it, hundreds of articles. Uh, Daniel Goleman, G-O-L-E-M-A-N, is probably one of the leaders of emotional intelligence. Uh, so lots of things that people can look at super, super quick. A lot of emotional intelligence is about brain science and what is going on in our brain. It's fascinating work. So we have something called an amygdala. That's A-M-Y-G-D-A-L-A, amygdala. It's the center of our brain, kind of between our ears. And that's what triggers what we call the fight or flight mode. So the fight or flight mode is something happens and either I'm going to fight it or I'm going to run away. And then we have a part of our brain called the frontal cortex. It's right in our forehead, kind of above our eyes. And that's the decision-making part of our brain. And so what happens is when we have an amygdala hijack, when I'm frustrated, when I'm ticked off, when I'm exhausted, the amygdala will then hijack the front part of our brain. It's fascinating. And then the front part of our brain cannot make decisions. So at a very high level, what we need to do is we need to put a pause between our amygdala and the hijacking of our frontal brain, which is, makes the decisions. So there's lots of different things you can do uh, to create more space, literally, and a pause between those two things. So it could be very simple breathing techniques. It could be very simple um, meditation, but I mean, tiny meditation that you can do in a boardroom. Uh, it can be grounding techniques. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to make sure that the amygdala doesn't hijack. People who have really practiced this on a daily basis, what does that look like? It looks like maybe doing a little bit of Tai Chi, three minutes of Tai Chi every day, uh, a body scan, uh, things like that actually have a better response and therefore do not let that amygdala hijack them and their moods and then therefore hijack the room. So I encourage everybody to look it up. Look at Dan's work, uh, lots of articles out there, but if nothing else, it's really being mindful of what's going on in my body. I'm really frustrated. How do I breathe one or two breaths? Not like, 
you know, in the middle of a meeting, that's going to be a little weird, but how do I breathe? How do I calm myself down before I say something or do something or make a decision that I'm going to regret? So it sounds to me that this emotional intelligence is all, is all about self-control. Am I right? Yeah, emotional control. We can't always, we can't control the amygdala. Uh, mm-hmm. that we, it's wired into us. We can't control that. However, we can control how we manage it, manage our emotions, manage our responses. Mm-hmm. So the, the more calm, the more self-control, the more cool you are, the, 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 the better for your career. That's what you Absolutely. Saying. Absolutely. Right. If you're always uh, the person who blows up, who yells, right, what's going to happen to the team? They're not going to speak up. They're not going to give any ideas. They're going to be afraid of things. They're, they're not going to take risks. They're going to be afraid of failure. Right. That's not going to help the tech space. Right. You need to make rule, break rules. You need to test things. Things are going to break. Um, and so the more that you can say, okay, well, that didn't go as planned. Okay, well, that was certainly was not something we anticipated. What's a way that we can move forward? That's going to be a much better conversation than what is wrong with you and why did that break and why didn't you tell me about it ahead of time? So you think it's people for, for people who are, you know, natively or originally are more anger and more emotional, for them to build a career, it's more difficult than for people who are, you know, who are more calm by, by definition? Uh, I, I, I think yes. Again, I think it's a both and um, in the sense of uh, even if, I don't think people are naturally born calm, right? Uh, it, it comes from practice and it comes from what shaped you as an individual. Uh, and I do think that if anger or, again, the trigger of the amygdala is something that is a constant for you and it shows up in lashing out at clients or lashing out at colleagues or throwing your computer against the wall, that there are certain things that can help you manage that, which then manages your own health. We've even talked about that, but the impact of having constant amygdala hijacks is what we call adrenal fatigue syndrome, right? And you're, you have this adrenal fatigue syndrome. You then feel it with Coke and coffee. And then we start getting into health issues. That's a whole nother matter. Uh, but I think that it is very easy if you commit to it, to daily practices. And I'm talking like two minutes a day. I'm not talking an hour on the couch. A minute a day, which will help you manage that, which will make you more consistent, easier to work with, and then gives you more space to be innovative and creative to do what you do well. You know, I think I'm going to I'm going to meditate for half an hour after this podcast recording. <laughs> <laughs> that's a long motivated. time that's a long time start i'd say start with five minutes that's a long time okay i have one last question for you uh actually getting back to the to the to the topic i brought up in the beginning about freelancers and full-time people so there are differences between them right in in all the areas of the soft skills we're talking about so i think so so freelancers are freelancers full-time there are full-timers do you see the difference i think you do so tell me about that uh, so I wouldn't say there's a difference in freelancers and full-timers in terms of soft skills. Uh, the, the term is really in, in terms of how you are paid and your legal status. Uh, so you can have freelancers who have high emotional intelligence and freelancers who have low emotional intelligence. You can have full-time employees who have high and who have low. So there's no difference there. Um, now, a freelancer is often uh, 
works somewhat somewhat like an individual contributor, right? They're working on their own, not necessarily with a big team. Uh, however, freelancers really are going to need the soft skills because they're going to have to sell themselves. They're going to have to work with a team that is often remote. They're going to have to influence when they're not in front of the person that they are creating the product for. Uh, so it's a skill set that everybody can use. Uh, but I certainly would not say that freelancers have better soft skills than uh, full-timers. I would say that's really situation and individual. But they, they need more of those skills or less because they're sitting, in most cases, let's speak about, let's talk about freelancers who are also remote workers. So they are sitting somewhere, they communicate over the phone or internet or somehow, but they almost never show up in the office. So do they really need those soft skills when they're actually just, you know, calling you on Zoom or Skype or whatever? So they're not in the office, they're not in those meetings most of, most of the time, they are remote people. So do they need soft skills? Well, yes, everybody needs soft skills. Soft skills are a life skill. Um, and it really depends on the work. If literally it's like, hey, Anne, just create this product and send it to me. Uh, maybe I don't need soft skills for that particular project. Um, however, if it is, hey, Anne, you're part of the bigger team, and you need to join the meetings by Zoom once a week, and you need to contribute to the final product once a week, then absolutely they are going to need soft skills to be able to do that remotely. They're going to be exactly the same set of soft skills, or they may be different? What do you think? Oh, my gosh. There's so many soft skills. We've only talked about a few today. Uh, mm -hmm. But the four that we talked about, uh, they would certainly need. Collaboration, conflict management, emotional intelligence, coaching – all of those skills would absolutely help them. And do you think those skills are changing in time? Like if you look at like, for example, 50 years back and then we're looking at the, at the industry right now, let's say software industry, and we'll look for 50 years ahead. So do you think there are some, some dynamics of changing of those soft skills we need or it's the same set of skills which we needed before and we're gonna need in the future? I think in the future, we are going to need more and more soft skills because of AI. I think AI is gonna be doing more of the menial work for us, right? So I don't actually have to sit there and code, uh, but there are other things that I do need to do. The teams are gonna be more global. The teams are gonna be much more remote. We're gonna be using technology a lot more. And so the human factor is gonna be so much more important, right? Because we're gonna be doing some automatic stuff, but then there's gonna be some stuff that only the humans can do. And so that's going to be more of the collaboration, more of the innovation, more of the creativity. And so we are going to need more and more of emotional intelligence and soft skills in the future than we do even now. So that's a recommendation for our listeners. So if you want to be more successful, you sort of start shifting from just being pure technical person into being more like a people person, right? And, and again, it's a both and, right? I mean, you got tired because you, um, you got, you're really good at programming and coding and testing. Um, so don't lose those skills. Let's be really clear. We need those skills and grow the soft skills as well. Great. It sounds great to me. I actually learned a lot today after, after listening to you. So thank you for, for coming. Thank you yeah. so much. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks a lot for me. And also I will, I will show in the, in the show notes, I will mention your book, which is on Amazon. I will mention your blog posts. I think it's worth reading and buying and everything. Thank you so much. All right. Bye-bye.